Now this morning, we continue our study of the Bible's teachings regarding the duties of Christian fellowship, utilizing a brief treatise written by the Puritan John Owen. Those who have been in this class during past months know that that is what we've been studying in these classes that I've been teaching, but of course we may have those who did not know that. So we are using this brief treatise written by John Owen. We are presently working through section two of Owen's treatise. That section is entitled, Rules for Walking in Fellowship with Respect to Other Believers. Section 1, by way of reminder, contained rules for walking in fellowship with respect to the pastor of the congregation. So the focus of Section 2 shifts from our relationship to the pastors of the congregation to our relationship to other Christians within the local church. We've already studied Rule 1 in this second section of Owen's treatise and examined various scriptures which supported that rule. And by way of review, Rule 1 was this. Believers have a duty of affectionate, sincere, genuine love in all things towards one another, a love compared to that of Christ for the church. And so we saw that if Jesus Christ loves us as sinners, and if he is gracious and faithful to us, affectionate towards us, how much more should we be such toward our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? And then we examined scriptures that demonstrated the importance of Owen's rule number two in this second section. And rule number two was this, believers must maintain continual prayer for the prospering of the church under God's protection. And that we saw that we need to indeed pray for the work of Christ in his church. More recently, on March 1st, we began our study of rule number three in this second section, and it is a lengthier rule, and therefore I divided this rule into four parts. So by way of review, first in this rule, rule number three in the second section, Owen stated a comprehensive duty of every believer, and then he gave three specific applications of this comprehensive duty. So rule number three states, believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings. And then he goes on to give the applications, but that is the comprehensive duty given to every Christian here in this rule. Believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings. So then Owen continued and stated the three specific applications of that comprehensive duty. He said that believers must do this striving and fighting with determination, first of all, for the purity of the ordinances. Secondly, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation. And thirdly, in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. 
So in examining the scriptural support for the comprehensive duty given to us in this rule, we learned in previous classes that we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints, as Jude wrote. Jude's words in verse 3 of his brief epistle exemplify Owen's instructions in this rule that believers must strive and fight with determination. However, Owen also wisely noted in his rule that as we contend earnestly for the faith, we must always do so in biblically legitimate ways by using spiritual weapons, not carnal weapons. We then began, by way of review, our study of Owen's three specific applications of this comprehensive duty of striving and fighting with determination as believers. First, as Christians, we were instructed that we must strive and fight with determination for the purity of the ordinances. That is, we must strive as Christians, fight as Christians for the maintenance of the purity of the worship of God and the faithful preaching of the word of God. And then the second application, we must strive and fight with determination for the honor and liberty and privileges of the congregation. That is, we must never relinquish our biblical duties, our biblical liberties, our biblical privileges, which have been given to us by God in the scriptures. And the Apostle Peter understood this. When he was charged by the Jewish Sanhedrin not to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ anymore, Peter responded by stating in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. There was a clear command to disobey the word of God by the Sanhedrin, and Peter then said, no, I must strive and fight, as it were, with determination for the honor, the liberty, the privileges of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I must obey God rather than man. So that is a brief review of where we have been in our studies in this treatise of John Owen and these particular rules and the scriptures which support them. So now we come to some new material this morning. And I want us to consider the third application of Owen's rule, this rule number three, namely that believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way in order to help others, that is, other believers, in the face of all opponents and adversaries. So this is Owen's third application in this rule. We are, as Christians in the local church, to help other believers in the face of all opponents and adversaries. And as we consider this responsibility, this duty, we must begin by identifying, according to the Bible, who our opponents and adversaries are. And the Christian has many opponents and many adversaries, according to the word of God. 
And so let us identify our opponents and our adversaries. By way of illustration, military generals who are engaged in warfare, they know that there are many things they must know in order to win the battle, to win the war. And one of the things they must know is who their enemy is. What is their enemy like? What do they typically do? What do they not do? The general needs to understand who his opponent is in order to wage warfare effectively. And we must know who our opponents are as Christians. So we'll turn to our Bibles, and I hope you have your Bible ready at hand. So the identity of our opponents and adversaries, first of all, the devil. The devil is an opponent and adversary of every Christian. His name, devil, identifies that he is a slanderer and an accuser of the people of God, as well as of God himself, for that is what his name, devil, means. It means slanderer, accuser. So turn now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, and I will read this portion of Scripture. Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuses them before our God day and night. You see here in these words in Revelation 12, the devil is the accuser of the people of God, and he is not ashamed to do that even before God himself and God's omniscience day and night. In this passage, he's also called the great dragon. He's called the old serpent, and he's also called Satan. So that's the second thing to note here. His name, devil, means slanderer and accuser. But secondly, the devil is called Satan, which literally means that he is the adversary, the adversary of God and the adversary of God's people. And this name was given to him there in Revelation 12, 9. But now turn to Luke 22 and verse 31. Luke 22 and verse 31, where the Lord Jesus uses this name concerning the devil. He uses the name Satan. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is speaking, of course, to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan asked to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I made supplication for you, that your faith fail not, and you, 
when once you have turned again, establish your brethren. So we see here that Jesus called this adversary Satan, and that is what that word Satan means. Satan was the adversary of Peter. He was tempting Peter, endeavoring to cause Peter to deny Christ totally and absolutely, to have his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ fail. But it did not, because the Lord, who loved Peter, prayed for Peter. But we also see the adversarial nature of Satan and the devil in other passages, such as 1 Peter 5.8. You don't need to turn there. I'll read this, where Peter warns us. And of course, this is the Peter whom Satan desired to sift as wheat. I cannot help but think that Peter learned much from that difficult trial, that difficult sin, and his recovery. So in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter wrote these words, Be sober, be watchful. He wasn't watchful on that night. Jesus had exhorted Peter and the others, Watch and pray. But Peter was not watchful. He was not prayerful. And Peter remembers that. And so he wrote in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Peter understood in some degree what this evil being was like Satan, the adversary, the devil. The one who is called the devil when Satan is not a friend to any Christian. He's not a friend to any human being who's not a Christian. Neither is he ever indifferent to the Christian. Satan or the devil was not one who is unconcerned about the Christian's heart or life. No, the devil, Satan, the adversary, the accuser, is likened by Peter unto a vicious, prowling, hungry lion who is stalking his prey and seeking to devour, to swallow up whole and destroy the Christian. That is who our opponent is. But thirdly, the devil was also called Apollyon. I'd like you to turn to Revelation 9 and verse 11. Revelation 9 and verse 11. They have over them as king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue... He has the name Apollyon. Now, there are some commentators who state that this Apollyon is one of the devil's servants, and that may be so, but it seems that perhaps it is referring to the devil himself. And if it is, we need to understand what that word means, Apollyon. It means destroyer, and certainly the devil is an Apollyon. He is a destroyer. He rules with terror and destruction over any and all whom he overcomes. He is to be understood as such an evil being by us as Christians. 
But now, fourthly, the devil is also in the Bible called our enemy. He is called our enemy by the Lord Jesus Christ in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. And I'd like you to turn to Matthew 13 and verse 37. Matthew 13, verse 37. Here we read, And he, that is Jesus, answered and said, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The Lord is explaining this parable of the tares. Verse 38, And the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. So Jesus calls the devil an enemy. He's an enemy of God, an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the Holy Spirit, an enemy of the kingdom of Christ, an enemy of the church of Christ, an enemy of all the people of God, an enemy really of every living human being. He is an evil, hostile, hateful, opposing enemy to the Lord Jesus Christ and all his people. That is who he is and what he is. But now, fifthly, the devil is a murderer and a liar. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 44. John 8, 44. The Lord Jesus is the one speaking here. You are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and stands not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. For he is a liar and the father thereof. And there we stop the reading of the scriptures. We should note with careful attention what the Lord revealed about the devil in these words in John 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, declared that the devil is a murderer and he is a liar and there is absolutely no truth in him. And he has been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So this is who our opponent and adversary is, a murderer and a liar. And we should not forget that. Now, by way of some practical lessons here, what is the point of citing all these scripture truths regarding the devil? By citing them, by quoting them, by referring to them, am I giving undue attention to this evil, malevolent being? No, I am seeking to instruct us and arm us as members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will not be ignorant of who the devil is and what his devices are. The Apostle Paul clearly did this when he wrote to the Christians who were members of the church in Corinth, Greece. Remember that. 
That letter was written to people who were Christians, members of a local church in Corinth, Greece. He wrote to them in 2 Corinthians 2.11, you don't need to turn there, he said, we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Furthermore, if we are to do what John Owen says we should do, and we believe it is right and biblical what John Owen instructs, if we are to strive and fight in order to help our fellow Christians in the church and in the world, in the face of all opponents and adversaries, then we must know, like the army general, who our opponents are, who our adversaries are. We must, we must not forget that the Bible teaches us what we've just learned. We must not forget that the devil is the chief slanderer, accuser, adversary, destroyer, enemy, murderer, and liar. And as such, he is an opponent of every Christian and of every Christian church. John Owen is exhorting us in this rule as Christians and members of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ to help one another in our battles with this evil opponent, the devil. We're to help one another. And it's hard in one way at this point in time with a coronavirus. We can't see each other face to face, except for those that are in our own home. We can't come together in the church building on the Lord's Day and interact and say, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? But we still can do that to one degree or another via text messaging, via emails, via telephone calls, via FaceTime, via Skype. And so we should try to do that, to help one another during these difficult weeks. So, for example, when you are talking with one of your brothers or sisters via FaceTime or Skype or on the phone, or in the future, face-to-face, when you're talking with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, and you have a close personal relationship with that brother or sister, and you realize, you've come to know, that he or she struggles with assurance of salvation. And that particular Christian is, at times, prone to discouragement, prone even to depression. You should not be ignorant of Satan's devices in such a case. You should seek to help that brother or sister by using appropriate portions of the Word of God to strengthen his or her faith in Jesus Christ, to pray for that brother or sister as well. You need to be praying and asking, Lord, what scripture can I use to help that brother, to help that sister, to overcome some of those struggles? The devil often accuses Christians, reminding them of their past sins. Reminding them of their present sins. Reminding them of their many failures. The devil then seeks to turn that Christian's attention away from Jesus Christ, the living Savior, 
and onto themselves. And you, you don't need a theology degree. You don't need to have a college degree. You don't need to have a high school degree. You just need to have your Bible. You can, with your Bible, help such brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with assurance of salvation. You must not be ignorant that Satan will be very pleased, if I may put it that way, to bring up to that Christian, to his or her remembrance, all of the past sins and past failures, all of the present sins, and you need to take the word of God and help that brother or sister to overcome those struggles, to overcome that adversary, the devil. This is what John Owen is teaching us in this particular rule. Help your brothers and sisters in Christ, with such struggles by using the word of God. Now, a vivid example of such help given to a discouraged brother, although in this particular example, the discouragement was not due to a lack of assurance. But nevertheless, this particular example in the scriptures portrays what we should do to help our discouraged brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the cause of their discouragement. And this example is found in 1 Samuel 23. I'd like you to turn there in your Bible so you may see it with your own eyes. 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. First Samuel 23, verse 15. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in the wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God, end quote. So again, it's not David struggling with assurance of salvation, but David was clearly discouraged. He is being tracked down by King Saul. King Saul wanted to murder him. Remember, the devil is a murderer. He uses people to carry out his murderous designs, such as King Saul. So David was discouraged. David was greatly discouraged. And what did Jonathan do? He knew that his father, if he discovered him, would not be pleased. But Jonathan, nevertheless, we're told in verse 16, he arose and he went to David. You see, he took the initiative. He went to him into the wood. He sought him out and he strengthened his hand in God. Now, we're not told exactly how Jonathan did that in this passage, but I would imagine that he, first of all, probably put his arm around his friend David. But then he probably also just listened to David. Then he talked with David and probably used scripture with David, maybe prayed with David. You see, in this history, the devil was using King Saul to discourage David. And Jonathan came to David to help him in his distress. 
And I believe, again, he probably used scripture to encourage him. That is what we are to do with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them, whether it's discouragement because of a lack of assurance or struggles with assurance of salvation, or discouragements because of a way Way a, a wayward son or daughter, or discouragements because of long-standing sickness and illness, discouragements because of opposition at the place of work. Whatever the discouragements are, we're to help one another by using the scriptures to strengthen our brethren in their faith in Christ. But another one of Satan's devices of which we must not be ignorant as Christians in a local church. We must not be ignorant of this device of Satan as members of a biblical church. Another one of his devices is this. It's the work of dividing and conquering. And again, I was in the army. I'm thankful to God I never had to actually go into warfare. But I was trained and had to study warfare realities as an officer. And dividing and conquering is a military strategy to defeat your enemy. If you can separate your enemy, if you can separate them, whether into two parts, three parts, four parts, if you can separate them, divide them, they're easier to conquer. And the devil was not ignorant of that reality. If he can separate Christian brethren within the church, if Satan can separate Christian brethren not only from one another, but separate Christian brethren from their pastor or pastors, the devil will do it. He has no pity. He has no love. He has no care, no concern. He doesn't care for you. He doesn't care for me. How does Satan divide and conquer in the church? By being true to his own character. He's a murderer and a liar, a slanderer and accuser, a deceiver and enemy, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is true to his own character. Satan divides and conquers by insinuating falsehoods about Christians among Christians in a church. That's one of his devices. He will insinuate falsehoods about a Christian among Christians in the church. He will divide and conquer by prompting a Christian, wrongly and sinfully, of course, on the part of the Christian, by prompting a Christian, urging a Christian to spread gossip, to spread slanders about other members of the church, verbally or electronically. Satan tempts Christians to be suspicious of a brother or sister within the church. That brother or sister hasn't spoken to me in several weeks. We're not talking about the virus situation now, a regular ordinary situation. And the the one member of the church, man or woman, thinks, well, that brother, that sister, they haven't spoken to me in weeks. What is wrong? Maybe they don't like me anymore. Maybe they think I'm not kind enough to them, or, you know, all sorts of sinful 
suspicions. Satan tempts Christians to be suspicious of a brother or sister within the church and then prompts that Christian, if it's unchecked by the work of the Spirit of God in that Christian, to sow seeds of suspicion with words of distrust or words of questionings even as the devil himself did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Has God said, you shall not surely die? You see, Satan was sowing seeds of distrust, seeds of wrong questionings, seeds of doubt, suspicion in Adam and Eve towards God. And he will certainly do that with us if we allow him to do that, if we're not on our guard. Given the opportunity, Satan will plant and cultivate disaffection in a Christian's heart toward another member of the church or toward one of the pastors in the church. The devil will use unjust criticism of a church member or of a pastor to divide and conquer. Or the devil will magnify real faults and real sins of a brother or a sister in order to separate Christians one from another. This brother really did sin. But then the devil tempts another Christian in the church to magnify that sin, to make it much bigger than it really is. And of course, then where is love in that matter of covering over that sin? But the devil will use unjust criticisms of a church member or pastor. He will magnify the faults or the sins of the brethren to separate them from one another. And whenever he can, the devil will also promote murmuring and complaining about other members of the church or of the pastors of the church in order to destroy relationships. Remember, he's Apollyon. He's the destroyer. He has no love for any of us as Christians. None. Only murderous hatred, seeking to devour and destroy, seeking to terrorize, to divide and conquer. That is who this evil enemy is. And we must not be ignorant of his devices. Given any opportunity to do any of these evil things among the brethren in the church, the devil will do it. It is one of his wicked devices, divide and conquer. And understanding these realities, as unpleasant as they are, understanding them as members of the church, we can help one another to prevent such things from occurring and to overthrow such satanic opposition. And how do we do that? By exhorting one another daily, as long as it is day, with the word of God, using the Bible, using scriptures, which encourage and promote and cultivate love, goodwill, peace, and unity among the brethren. Even as Pastor Hoffmeyer has been instructing us through the book of Colossians in chapter 3, we are to indeed encourage, promote, cultivate love, goodwill, peace, and unity among the brethren. We are to do that, all of us individually, all of us corporately. 
So we can thwart Satan by doing that, exhorting one another daily with the word of God, promoting, encouraging, cultivating love, goodwill, etc. But also by swiftly repenting of our sins and by swiftly mortifying our sins, specifically the sins of gossip, the sins of slander, the sins of murmuring, the sins of criticizing, the sins of suspicion, the sins of ill will, and then by putting on the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in the New Testament again and again. We're to put off and we're to put on. We're to shun and reject and get rid of all of these awful remaining sins in our hearts and lives by the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, and we're to put on, by the help of the Spirit of God, all of the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's both putting off, putting on, repenting of and mortifying our sins, putting on the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we must ask God to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit more fully in our hearts and lives. If you are a Christian, you already have the Spirit indwelling within you. And with the Spirit indwelling you, you are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit to one degree or another. But surely when you read through that list of the fruit of the Spirit, you as a Christian like me say, I need to grow in this particular area, this fruit of the Spirit, that aspect. So we need to ask God to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit more fully in our hearts and lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and following. So brethren, we need to use these spiritual weapons, you see, to fight with determination in every legitimate way and to help our brethren, to help one another to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ right here at Trinity Baptist Church and in northern New Jersey and in our country and in the world. So that is one of Satan's devices, divide and conquer. And we must not permit him to do that in our own hearts and lives and in the church. We must help one another. But a third device which Satan uses in the church whenever he can is this. He works to make Christians bitter toward other Christians. So that they even, Paul said at times in Galatians 5, so that they even sadly bite and devour one another. So Satan uses this device whenever he can. He works to make Christians bitter towards one another. And of course, such bitterness will produce separation and division between Christians. If you are bitter toward one other brother or sister in the church, you, of course, will be separated. You won't want to have anything to do with him or her. 
So the devil knows that. Bitterness will produce separation and division between Christians. And then the embittered soul can be taken advantage of by the devil. That is what the devil will do. The root of bitterness, if left unchecked by the Spirit of God through repentance and faith in Christ, the root of bitterness, if left unchecked, will also destroy the embittered soul. If Satan can destroy one soul within a church that has 1,000 members, if that's all he's able to do, he will do it. But you see, Satan is also very shrewd in a very sinful way. Satan is not ignorant of the fact that bitterness not only defiles the whole man, if left unchecked, bitterness can spread like the coronavirus from one church member to another. It's a very evil, evil thing. Satan is not ignorant of that. And let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And let us not be ignorant either of the society in which we live, which is not at all helpful to the grace of God. Our society is composed of men and women who are increasingly manifesting bitterness, harshness, rancor, unkindness, hatred, and I don't know if this is a word, but implacableness. People who will not be reconciled with others. People who cannot be reasoned with. People who cannot even sit and listen to one another without being nasty. People who interrupt one another. This is the reality of our culture and society in which we live. And we should not be ignorant that it can have a negative influence upon us as believers. And therefore, we must labor. You see, the idea of being a passive Christian is nonsense. We must labor by the help of the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And to that end, there are additional remedies against the devices of Satan, or this specific device of Satan, of embittering souls. We must use these spiritual and practical remedies so that we may help one another again. Help ourselves, of course, but help one another in the face of all of our opponents and adversaries, Satan in particular, who will endeavor to place bitterness in your heart and soul and have that affect others as well, that they become embittered. And at this point in my teaching, I'm indebted to the Puritan Thomas Brooks for these specific counsels. I'm not going to, I'm quoting him at times. Sometimes I've modernized his English a little bit. And I'm not citing all of Thomas Brooks' counsels, but I think these are particularly helpful to us 
concerning this device of Satan to make an individual bitter, bitter towards others in particular. So Brooks wrote, one great device that Satan has to destroy the saints is by working them to be bitter and jealous and to bite and devour one another, end quote. So to prevent such bitterness and jealousy and devouring from occurring in your heart, in my heart, within the church, Thomas Brooks exhorted his readers in a number of ways. He said, first of all, we must dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. Stop and think about that. Isn't it easy to find the speck in your brother's eye? Jesus taught this. He said, it's so hypocritical. You're seeing the speck in your brother's eye, the fault, the problem, the sin, whatever it may be. You're seeing that little speck. You have a beam in your own eye. You see, that's what Thomas Brooks is pointing out. Instead of looking for the specks and the problems, I'm not denying there are real specks, not denying there's real problems, real sins in your brothers and your sisters in Christ. But instead of looking for their problems, instead of looking for their sins, instead of looking for their specks, Jesus says, first of all, look at yourself. Deal with your own sins, those logs that you have in your own eye. And Brooks is saying, also do this. Look at the graces of God by the work of the Holy Spirit in your brother, in your sister, here in the church. Look at the graces that God, through Christ and the Spirit, has produced in your brother and sister. Focus on them instead of their specks, their sins, their weaknesses, their infirmities. He's not saying be ignorant of them. And if you have a close relationship with that brother or that sister, you should exhort at times, admonish at times, help, but making sure you're always dealing with your own logs and not being a hypocrite, but also seeing the grace of God in your brother or sister, helping one another in that way. Brooks said, secondly, we should meditate upon those commands of God that require you to love one another. How easy it is for a husband and wife to quickly get at odds with one another. And maybe the problem is a real sin problem. But they're also, as Christians, though married to each other, commanded to love one another even as Christ loves the church. And what the Puritan Brooks is reminding us here, if you would not allow bitterness to creep into your heart, if you would keep it out of your heart, if you keep it out of the church, remember and think upon the commands of God that require you to love one another. Thirdly, remember and take to heart that God delights to be called the God of peace. And Christ is called the Prince of Peace. 
He's called the King of Salem, the King of Peace. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of Peace. You see what Brooks wants us to remember. Who is God? What is God like? What does God reveal of himself in the scriptures by his names? He is the God of peace, and we are his children, so we should be the children of peace, one with another, and help one another to be peaceable with one another. Christ is the king of Salem, the king of peace, the spirit, the spirit of peace. We need to remember those truths, those realities, and pray and say, Lord, since you are that way, I must be that way. I must be that way in my marriage, in my family, and in the local church with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Fourthly, Brooks says, think upon the miseries. Here's the opposite end of the spectrum. Think about God as the God of peace. But now think upon the miseries of discord within the church. By way of illustration, I've heard excellent pianists in Carnegie Hall One time with a sister in the church and my own wife, we went to Carnegie Hall and we listened to a pianist play Beethoven's Emperor's Concerto, one of the most beautiful pieces of music. The man had no music notes before him. It was all from memory. I'm very familiar with that piece. I don't play the piano, but I could not hear any mistakes. It was unbelievable. But then you take a three-year-old child who sits down at a piano in your home and is delighting to play the piano. And you're you're sitting in the living room, you're listening to this, and you're saying, this is painful. It's so not harmonious, it's discordant. Now, that's an illustration just to say, Brooks is saying, remember the miseries of discord within the church. We want the communications of the brothers and sisters in the church to be like that symphony, that pianist playing Beethoven's Emperor Concerto in Carnegie Hall. That's the way our communications with each other should be. That's the way our relationship should be. Beautiful, harmonious, delightful. Not like the three-year-old playing the piano, banging on the piano with these awful squawks and sounds. But fifthly, Brooke says, consider that you are not cast into a bad light if you are the first one to seek peace and reconciliation. So if you know you have a brother or a sister and you, you know I should really speak to him or her, well, I'm waiting for him to do it or her to do it. No, maybe you should go. And Brooks is saying, realize that doesn't make you less of a Christian. If you first admit, I have sinned, I have been bitter toward you, brother or sister, I am wrong, that doesn't make you less of a Christian, Brooks is saying. Take the initiative. Sixthly, engage much in self-judging, very similar to something that he already spoke, that I've already mentioned but engage much in self-judging. And Brooks goes on, and here I quote him again. 
Ah, were Christians' hearts more taken up in judging themselves and condemning themselves, they would not be so quick to judge and censure others and to carry it sourly and bitterly towards others that differ from them. End quote. You see what he's saying? If you are quick to judge yourself, quick to condemn yourself, you won't be so quick to judge or condemn somebody else. You won't be sour and bitter towards that person because of what he or she supposedly did or what he and she or he or she really did. Instead, judge yourself in the light of the coming day of judgment. And then lastly, Brooks wrote this. To deal with this sin of bitterness in the heart, that you not be bitter towards brothers or sisters, but instead have love towards brothers and sisters in the church. Labor to be clothed with humility. Labor to be clothed with the grace of humility. And here I quote Brooks again because it's so good. Humility makes a man peaceable among brethren, fruitful in well-doing, cheerful in suffering, and constant in holy walking. Humility will make a man quiet and contented in the meanest condition, the lowest condition, and it will preserve a man from envying other men's prosperous condition. Ah, did Christians more abound in humility, they would be less bitter, less froward or perverse, less sour, and they would be more gentle, meek, and sweet in their spirits and practices. Humility will make a man have high thoughts of others and low thoughts of himself." Humility will make a man see much glory and excellency in others and much real baseness and sinfulness in himself. Humility will make a man see others rich and himself poor, others strong, himself weak, others wise, himself foolish. Humility will make a man excellent at covering others' sins and infirmities and at recording their gracious services and delighting in their graces. When a Christian man or woman is clothed by the Spirit of God with this grace of humility, Brooks is saying, you will be very excellent and quick at covering over others' infirmities and sins, noticing and recording their gracious services on your behalf, delighting in their graces as well, and it will make a man or woman joy in every light that outshines his own light. In other words, you see that Christian advancing in spiritual graces, advancing in holiness, advancing in humility. You won't be jealous. You won't be saying, well, who knows what's really going on in his life, her life. You won't do that. You'll rejoice sincerely, truly, with holy joy clothed with humility, 
Brooks then says, oh, were Christians more humble, there would be less fire and more love among them than now is. Brethren, let us heed the words of Brooks. Let us heed the words of John Owen. Let us help one another as Christians in the church against all opponents and adversaries, the devil in particular and his devices. But most importantly of all, let us believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us trust in him with all of our hearts for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Let us plead with him that he will work in our hearts and lives individually, as husbands and wives, as families, as church members, that when we come back together, God willing, in the very near future, if God's pleased, as a church physically, we will find that our love for one another has only deepened and grown, and that the devil, our adversary, has gained no advantage in any heart, any soul, of anyone at Trinity Baptist Church. God can do this. Christ can do this. Let us plead with him that he would. So let's close now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, which is always relevant to us. And we pray that you would help us, your people, to not be ignorant of Satan's many devices, but most importantly, even as we understand his devices, let us also trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, soak our souls in the word of God, put into practice what we learned from the word of God, not only our own Bible reading, but what we hear from Pastor Chansky, Pastor Hoffmeyer, Pastor Carlson, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Lord, work in all of us that we would have love for one another that is wrought by your spirit and that we would indeed help one another on the way to heaven and glory. Please, Answer these prayers abundantly as we come in Jesus' name. Amen.